Hi, and welcome to Office Hours, the podcast of Westminster Seminary, California, that takes you inside the seminary and face-to-face with our faculty. I'm Mike Horton, and today I'm switching places with our usual host, our Scott Clark. Scott is professor of church history and historical theology at Westminster Seminary, California. He's the author of Recovering the Reformed Confession, Casper Olivion and the Covenant of Grace, and editor of Covenant Justification and Pastoral Ministry, as well as Protestant Scholasticism, Essays in Reassessment. These titles, by the way, are available through the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California. Just go to wscal.edu slash bookstore. Hi, Scott. Welcome to Office Hours. Hi, Mike. Yeah, trading places here. <laughs> How does it feel to be on the hot seat now, huh? I don't, uh-huh. What are you going to do to me? I'm a little <laughs> concerned. You, you you, look like you're enjoying this too much already. So where were you on the night of the 33rd? <laughs> I, uh, I don't think I was anywhere. Um, uh, you have uh, a reputation for... Yes. <laughs> many reputations. The reputation for defending the Reformed faith. First of all, why do you think it needs to be defended? Why, why, um, why Reformed Christianity in particular? Well, I, because I think Reformed Christianity is true, and, uh, and I think uh, the truth needs to be defended. I, uh, yeah, it's unfortunate that I, I think I probably come across like a bulldog sometimes, and, and, and that's only because um, I, I, there are some things I think that are just really, really important in this world, and uh, and, and I think at the heart of, of what we believe is the you know the free grace of God for sinners. And uh, in, in the last several years, there have been significant challenges to what I regard as just basic Protestant, you know, Reformed Christian doctrine. And uh, and those things, I think someone has to stand up. And obviously, you've been doing it. Uh, for, for a long time, we won't say for how, how long, but you've been doing that for a long time, and, and so you know how important it is uh, to be clear about that and and uh, and to help people understand what's at stake. Uh, so when I've spoken up about these things, it's really, uh, in a sense, it's it's also I think because when uh, when I was ordained in um, in 1988, uh, I, I took a vow to do certain things and. Uh, one of those was to protect the sheep. And I think if we're not speaking up about dangers to the gospel, which is, as I say, at the heart of what we are and who we are and what we confess and what Scripture teaches, and um, then we, we, leave, we leave God's people uh, in jeopardy. So we not only have to get the gospel out, we have to get it right. Yeah, and I think we, and we don't have to choose between those two things. I think we, we always want to do both. Uh, and, and that's so I wish uh, that people understood how... Um, and not, not that I really care or should care anyway at the end of the day what people think about me, but it, um, I, I, do, I, I wish that people understood that I'm you know, as passionate about getting it out as I am about getting it right. But if, but if we don't have it right, then we can't get it out. Yeah, I mean, you've been involved in church planting work. You've been involved in outreach. It's, it's not as if these aren't connected in your own ministry. Oh, exactly. I mean, for years and years, uh, you know, my ministry in Kansas City, uh, I I was knocking on doors uh, days, days and days, years, months, uh, standing in parking lots, preaching in city missions, uh, you know, doing Bible studies with anyone everywhere, 
Uh, I anytime. think the Kansas City uh, Police Department still has you on file for standing <laughs> in the parking lot. Actually, if the uh, if the PD is listening in Kansas City, it's um, I think the statute of limitations has expired. <laughs> so how much of, we we look at the faithfulness of so many generations? Uh, sometimes those of us who were raised in non-reformed backgrounds or even non-Christian backgrounds. Uh, look with uh, a great longing at those who were raised in Reformed churches. Uh, you weren't raised in Reformed churches. How do you think that sense of you know coming to Reformed Christianity from the outside and really wrestling with it as someone who didn't believe it but then came to believe it still affects the uh, the vigor? and uh, ardency you have for, for clarifying and articulating Reformed Christianity to, to those outside? I think um, I, I remember very clearly coming to church for the first time. I, I, I don't know why that, that memory is just burned in. And I remember very much what it's like to be a stranger and coming in. I, I, uh, the best metaphor is what actually happened. I, I, I went in the wrong door. <laughs> sort of the story of my life. I went in the back door and uh, wandered around in this maze. Uh, it was a small Baptist church, but it was you know sort of typical church maze, and uh, everybody knew where they were going and what they were doing and what was happening, and I hadn't a clue. Uh, I don't. I don't. I think I had my dad's Bible, uh, which I I knew nothing about, and you know I wasn't even sure what time the services began. I had no idea what was going to happen when I when I went, really, and. Um, and so I, I have a lot of compassion for people who are who are like that, who, who come into not only Reformed Christianity but just you know generic Christianity from the outside. Um, I remember seeing uh, uh, "Good News for Modern Man" probably not long after it came out, a big fat paperback with stick figures on it, and it was on a friend's nightstand, and and I, I picked it up and I looked at it and I thought, New Testament. Wow, I wonder how often those come out. I thought it was like Reader's <laughs> Digest. You know, there were, I knew there was an Old Testament because I'd seen Charlton Heston, uh, you know, lead the people of, of God out of uh, out of Egypt, and uh, and I knew there was a Jesus. And I thought, well, you know, ever so maybe it's like Reader's Digest. Ever so often, there are there are new <laughs> new editions that come out. You know, uh, sort of great books. And and I, I remember being intimidated, thinking, wow, that's a big fat book. And if that comes out very often, I'll never get caught up. Um, so you can find those bodies in America, <laughs> where they come out with a a New Testament every well, now and again. That's true. I, I found that out later. That uh, yeah, there are those groups. Um, so I, uh, yeah, I guess I because I remember what it's like, and I understand what it's like not to know, not to understand. I remember being an unbeliever. Uh, I have a clear consciousness of of hearing, particularly hearing the law, and really hating it. Uh, I mean. Uh, reacting to it with a, a visceral, deep, abiding disgust, uh, and and now you know I, I see things obviously very differently. I remember looking at Jesus as a complete stranger, and and thinking you know well, you know he's obviously a great man, but what is he to me? Um, you know, uh, and then I remember coming to a point where I understood that, you know that this fellow uh, wasn't just some guy. Um, wasn't just another great religious teacher, but that, uh, in fact, I remember reading uh, the Gospel of Matthew, reading the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, um, I remember thinking, you know, I, well, Jesus said, if you've looked at, I'm 15 years old when I'm reading this, and he says, if you looked at a woman, you know, with the intention of lusting, you've committed adultery. If you've said, you fool, you're in danger of hellfire. And I, 
I remember thinking very distinctly, oh man. I'm toast. I'm toast. (laughs) Exactly. I thought this guy, he knows me. I had read, by that time, I had read, uh, you know, Abby Hoffman's Steal This Book. Uh, I'd read uh, some of Eldridge Cleaver. I'd, I'd read a lot of stuff as a young man, uh, none of it Christian. But when I read Jesus, I thought that this, this cat is completely different from anything I've ever read. And this guy is telling the truth. Uh, he, you know, he knows, the, he knows me, he knows the truth, and he's telling the truth. And uh, I've heard you say, as you talk about how you became a Christian, I've, I've heard you say... It was an Arminian who led me to Christ. Oh yeah, and uh, oh, in the worst possible way, saying the worst possible things, like you know, Christianity improved my life. He said, "I wouldn't if it didn't help my life, I wouldn't believe it." Those kinds of things. And yet, there was enough gospel in what he said for the Holy Spirit to use that and bring you to a saving knowledge of His Son. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, he he constantly pointed uh, to Christ and to the death of Jesus and. Uh, and you know the resurrection, um, not like not in the way that he should have, but but it was there. And and you know the thing that I remember about him most clearly is how faithful he was, how much he evidently loved me. Not and it was clear after a while he wasn't trying to get something from me. He wanted to give me something. Uh, and those people, you know, who who took me in in that congregation, they loved me. And and the minister, bless his heart, every Sunday preached the gospel at least at the end of the sermon. And and uh, so, so if the gospel is present in Arminian circles, and you were even even able to come to saving faith in those circles, why why should you be so concerned about going back to Arminian evangelicals and encouraging them to take another look at things? Well, because there's more, and because uh, uh, at the end of the day, uh, God is free to do whatever He wants. Uh, the way he wants. What what we're what I've learned as I become reformed is that what we are shut up to is God's self disclosure in Scripture. You know, Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine uh, says that the secret things belong to God, the revealed things belong to us and to our children, and the revealed things point us to the free grace of God in Jesus Christ. That He loves wretched, horrible sinners. He loved them in Christ. He loved them from all eternity. He loves them unconditionally. And the gospel is that Jesus came and accomplished for those sinners whom God loved from all eternity, uh, came and accomplished for them what they could not and would not do. And, uh, you know, Arminianism and, and the other, uh, I would say, corruptions of, of the true evangel, uh, in some way or other, they all diminish that. And our, our tagline at the seminary is for uh, uh, Christ, the gospel, and his church. And... Uh, how have those, you know, as I, I look at your writing, the work that you do with the Heidel blog, uh, that seems to be very much front and center. Those three things seem to be very much front and center in in your work. How how do you tie those three things together for Christ, his gospel, and his church? How are those related? And, and perhaps how are they often unrelated in contemporary Christianity? Mm-hmm. No, that's a that's a great question. I mean, to answer the second first, uh, you know, for most of modern Christianity, uh, you know, in uh, liberal circles, you have the Christ of faith, and then you have you know historic Christianity, and then you have the Church, which is regarded as an artificial construct, uh, and then Christianity as this historical phenomenon that has to be in effect deconstructed and 
and uh, you know reinterpreted uh, along modern rationalist or empiricist or, or whatever lines. And then, of course, the only Jesus you have out of that is the Christ of faith or, or the Jesus of some ex- existential encounter or what have you. Uh, unfortunately, too much of modern evangelicalism is like that now, accepts a lot of those same assumptions. Um, and, I, and I think the way that we want people to relate those three things is to say, no, uh, the Jesus of Scripture is the only Jesus there is. He is the Jesus of history. There aren't two Christs. There's not a historical Christ that we can sort of deconstruct. Uh, there is God the Son who came into history, that history is recorded in Scripture, and that's the Christ we preach. That's the Christ the Apostle Paul announced. Uh, you know, when, when Paul says, um, you know, the gospel, my gospel is uh, that Jesus, uh, uh, you know, is God the Son incarnate, he obeyed, he was raised on the third day. If he wasn't raised, our faith is in vain. Uh, you know, in Romans 1, he says that his gospel includes the return of Jesus. So, so this isn't what Jesus means to me. This is first and foremost... Who is Jesus and what did he do, period? Exactly. The objective, real history uh, that, that, that really happened and, and really is true and, and on which our faith is entirely based. Uh, so it does mean something for us, yeah. but we don't get to decide what that is. Exactly. What well, comes to us, as Luther said, you know, the gospel is outside you, but it comes to us and it, and it becomes a part of us by the application of the Spirit, the sovereign, gracious work of, of the Spirit. And so, you know, we have Christ, we have... Uh, the gospel, and, and the church. The same Jesus who was announced in Scripture uh, is, is the same Jesus who instituted a church. He instituted uh, keys of a kingdom. Uh, he announced a kingdom. He administers that kingdom uh, through the visible institutional church, through the announcement of the gospel, through uh, kingdom signs and seals. Uh, we call them sometimes covenant signs and seals. Uh, he announced discipline in that uh, in in that kingdom in that church, um, and then he 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 sent apostles. Uh, he established offices, and so I, in my mind, those three things are intimately related. I mean, I, I sometimes ask the students, you know, we, we ask, you know, where is the kingdom? Well, the kingdom ultimately is is in heaven, and it comes with Christ. But if you're relative to this earth. If I ask the, you know, if I ask someone, well, where is the kingdom of God? Where would I look for it? Well, you look for it in the, you know, in in the visible institutional church and in the preaching of the gospel, the administration of the sacraments. That's where people come in uh, to the kingdom of God, at least by divine ordination. So the church isn't uh, just an assembly of people who've all decided to follow Jesus. It's a communion of saints gathered together by God's sovereign grace. Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously, from one point of view, from a sort of civil point of view, it is a voluntary association. We don't have, at least in, in this country, the state you know, organizing congregations and forcing people to go to church. Uh, but from the point of view of, of redemption and the administration of the, of the spiritual kingdom, the, um, yeah, it, you know, the picture in Scripture is of the Word coming... Uh, for example, from Sinai and and constituting people as a church, as a congregation, as the assembly of the Lord, the ecclesia. Um, what do you say to people who say, "Well, that's just a spiritual thing"? Well, uh, I'd say look at the history of redemption. I mean, wherever you see God saving people, He's always gathering a congregation, and that those are real people in a real place. Uh, he instituted real sacrifices, not spiritual sacrifices. I mean, obviously, at the end of the day. Uh, you know, broken spirit and a contrite heart is more important than, than dead animals. But but 
God administers his church through real things, through a, a man, you know, standing, um, you know, in a pulpit and announcing truths, and he, and he confirms it uh, through the use of water and bread and wine, real earthly things. And so I don't see in Scripture any juxtaposition of the spiritual with the material. And I think when we do that, when we talk, when we make that kind of juxtaposition, we've set up a kind of, I think, Gnostic dualism between the the you know the, the the material and the immaterial and and I don't think that's consistent with scripture at all so you don't see Christ and his gospel on one side and the church on the other the church becomes a, a, a very important means of getting this gospel out to the world and Christ delivered to sinners oh i mean it it is the thing as far as i know through which chiefly the gospel comes and and where people meet Christ and uh, and where they hear the good news and and where they hear the bad news uh, by which they learn the you know so the heidelberg says the greatness of their sin and misery uh so it it um i think it's essential to the administration of salvation in this world uh and for the for the growth the well-being of uh, of God's people. I mean, it's through that message that they come, that they're made alive, that the Spirit operates, uh, by which they're united to Christ, and then it's in that union with Christ, in communion with God's people. You know, one loaf, Paul calls us. You know, we're one body, one loaf. Uh, we're we're one temple, uh, all united by the Holy Spirit uh, around Christ, and united to Christ. Each of us to each other and. And to Christ. So in this way, Christ fulfills his promise, I will not leave you as orphans. Well, exactly. I mean, uh, uh, you know, Scripture uses the language that Christ will be all in all. Uh, and, you know, we have one Father, you know, one God, one Father, one baptism, one faith, and so forth. So I think, you know, th- those ways of thinking about the church are much healthier than, than, for example, thinking of the church as a kind of, you know, purely voluntary assembly where I come to have a you know a religious experience, some ecstatic uh, experience of some kind. One of the things I love about uh, the seminary is the commitment to uh, m- to having faculty who are involved in ministry. Uh, you are a minister at the Oceanside United Reformed Church. How how does how does that involvement in week to week ministry shape your academic? and pedagogical uh, calling as a professor in a seminary? Mm. And that's a, that's a great question. Uh, well, for one thing, you know, I'm a pastor, so I sit on a consistory or a session, um, and I hear the same things that the elders and other pastors hear and uh, deal with the same things with which they deal. And so, you know, God doesn't call uh, good people into his church. He calls bad people who are very broken. And so, you know, that... Uh, that's in my consciousness all the time that we're dealing with those things and, and helping those people, helping God's people and, and letting them help us and loving them and, and uh, trying to show the grace of Christ uh, to them and point them to Christ. Uh, and so, you know, I, I'm, I'm with God's people on a regular basis, uh, you know, in the pulpit, uh, teaching catechism, you know, meeting with folks. And, uh, and so I realize that what we do here, you know, is prepare uh, people to serve Christ. Uh, you know, seventy percent of our students are MDiv, heading for pastoral ministry, and so you know that's. I think we're all conscious of that when we're lecturing. We're, we're, I'm certainly aware that, you know, I'm, I'm helping to train, prepare people to to fulfill that very important, that essential vocation in the world, and so that everything I say, I hope, 
helps, uh, particularly those 70% of our students uh, fulfill that vocation. And then also, of course, the other 30% who are you know, taking MA degrees and going uh, to serve God in, in various other significant vocations that, that obviously that what we do for them is, is uh, important as well. Uh, what, what are the courses that you teach? I teach uh, of the required um, MDiv courses, uh, the Ancient Church course, which is an introduction to the history, theology, uh, practice of the church for the first uh, 500 years or so, 400 years. Um, that's a, a two-credit course where we cover um, you know, the early fathers, we cover the, uh, the um, rise of Latin theology, the rise of the, the Greek church, um, Cover you know Augustine you know the great uh, theologians of the church we we uh, cover the great heresies uh, you know sort of heroes and heretics uh, and uh, I, I just started teaching that class uh, and so I that has been uh, really exciting to be able to dig into the early church right now I'm sort of enamored with the apostolic fathers I've been doing a, a fair bit of work on uh, uh, the now um, oh, won't come to me. Oh, uh, I've been uh, doing a fair bit of work on uh, the uh, treatise to uh, uh, Diognetus, uh, written by uh, possibly, according to a recent work by by Charles Hill, uh, possibly by um, Polycarp, uh, which mm. is an amazing thing to think about. Uh, you know, having this this uh, extended exposition of the faith, which is remarkably mature, uh, if it was written, let's say, in the one fifties. So I, at the moment, that's where my some of my interest is. Um, I also teach the medieval Reformation course, where we cover uh, just a thousand years of history. That's all <laughs> in thirteen weeks. So we do six weeks on the medieval church and six weeks on the on the Reformation, uh, and uh, obviously you know, laying the foundation for who we are, what we are, and and uh, the students seem to to benefit. They they testify on a pretty regular basis that. Uh, that that has uh, you know helped them understand who they are and, and why we do what we do and I just had a student say to me the other day uh, he was reading Luther and he said now I understand why you were saying what you were saying so that that's always uh, gratifying. What what is why why church history why don't we just read the Bible teach Hebrew and Greek and uh, equip uh, people pastors missionaries uh, people going on for PhD work. Equip them to be able to explain the scriptures. Why do we need church history? Well, people have tried to Unless do. Unless you're a history buff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like it's an exotic thing or so. Well, people have tried to do uh, theological education, and I think they probably do in some places without any history. The problem is we're not the first people to read the Bible. Uh, you know, we're at the end of a long chain of people who've been reading the Bible, and so we, we just can't read the scripture as if no one's ever read it before. That's, that's uh, historically, intellectually, spiritually, theologically, biblically irresponsible. I mean, just from the point of view of scripture, the apostles were, were conscious uh, that they were at the end of a long chain of Bible readers and Bible preachers, and, and that they were the recipients of all of that. And, and so, not that our history is identical to the apostolic history, but certainly there are analogies. And, uh, and so, we can, we can and we must learn from, from the history of the church. And from a historical point of view, we are the product of all of that. Uh, all know. the good of it and the bad of it. Well, exactly. And we need to be conscious of that. We need to be critical of that. We can't possibly be critical of our own uh, practice, our own theology, uh, and our own way of thinking, our own assumptions, without having some historical context in which to be 
critical in which to understand ourselves and our times. So I, I really think it's essential. I, you know, one way I, I sometimes, in, fi- in fact, I know Bob has said this himself, that... Um, Bob Godfrey, our president. Yeah, exactly. Bob Godfrey says this, that it's family history. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think that's right. These are, this is one of the great messages I try to get across to the students. These aren't those people. These are our people. That, you know, the Dutch have an expression, owns a folk. And these are uh, our people. Uh, Thomas is one of ours. Uh, Augustine is one of ours. Anselm is one of ours. Uh, Bonaventure is one of ours. Now, we have disagreements, uh, but we we have I have disagreements within my family, uh, so you know that that's just the way it is in a fallen world. But uh, that wouldn't keep me from you know learning about my grandfather or my great grandfather, and and as I do that, I come to a clearer sense of who I am and and why I am the way I am and why things are the way they are, uh, and and it's in that context then that we read scripture, that we explain it and that we try to put it into practice in the, in the life of the church. While on one end you have people uh, often who, who, who will say, why should we read these uh, dead people? Uh, you know, let's, let's just focus on where we are now. This is, this is the time in which God has placed us. Let's just focus on mission. On the other hand, you have often a kind of uh, hand-wringing conservatism in Reformed circles. It says, oh, if we can only go back... Yeah. to the era of uh, the Reformers or the Puritans. Sort of the same way you and I grew up. Why can't we go back to the, the Church of the Apostles? Yeah. What's wrong with that kind of uh, Golden Age thinking? Well, I, for one thing, it's not biblical. I mean, uh, Scripture never gives us the impression that there was a time when all was right, except in the Garden, and, and, and we know how that went. So... Um, uh, so that way, you know, we live in a fallen world, and so anyone who has, a, I think, a proper biblical doctrine of sin, an Augustinian doctrine of sin, should understand that, you know, that this is a fallen world. Things will never be quite the way that they ought to be, even in the best of, of times and places and, and circumstances. Uh, and, and, um, and so on the one hand, uh, it, it's just unrealistic and unhistorical uh, to, to think if we can only get back to such and such a time. Well, first of all, we can't do it. It's not possible. Uh, we don't have the power of ubiquity. Uh, we are in a given time, in a given place. We're products uh, of history. We live in a, you know, we, we have to live where we are, when we are, and we have to be faithful uh, where we are and when we are, um, you know, to the best of our ability by, by the grace of God. Uh, Plus, they didn't have Novocaine or penicillin. <laughs> well, that's right. Carl Truman's made that point. You know, people say they want to go back to the 16th century, and, and, I, and I agree with him that uh, the idea that uh, we can go back. Uh, you know, people clearly don't know very much about the 16th century. <laughs> right. <laughs> Most of the guys that we think of as heroes died in their early 50s, which means I've got you know six or you know, six years. And and they had all kinds of warts. Well, exactly. They're real human beings, and you know, if we if we knew them better, we would know that these are really fallen uh, uh, people. I and, always love it when people say, "If we could only go back to the Church of the Apostles," and I say, "What?" Yeah. Which one? Let's see. <laughs> Corinth. Let's do Corinth. Yeah, exactly. Uh, who wants a pastoral call to Corinth? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, yeah exactly. Galatia? There you go. Yeah. There's a great, great call. <laughs> uh, you want to go back to Ephesus? Colossae, where, yeah. Where Paul said, after I leave, I know savage wolves are going to come in and devour you. I mean, this is perennial. What you're saying is, hey, look, if the churches of the apostles, planted by the apostles, were so immediately threatened by heresy and schism. Yeah. The church is always going to be distressed and looking to its risen and ascended Lord 
uh, crying out for mercy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, one of the things I learned as a student here and that I continue to appreciate is the notion that we are pilgrims. You know, that's an ancient Christian theme. It's a biblical theme. Uh, and it's something that I've learned particularly from, you know, the, the, the uh, great Reformed Orthodox theologians of the 16th and 17th century. They, they had a way of talking about the theology that we do as pilgrim theology. And you know, they were conscious, probably more than we are, that, you know, while this certainly is our home while we are here, and this is a good creation, you know, it's not, I don't mean to give the impression that, that I'm just a passing through. It's not that. But on the other hand, we are heading to a heavenly city. Uh, that you know Abraham was looking for a city whose builder and maker is God, and and so are we. And first sermon I ever preached was uh, from Philippians three you know, about our heavenly citizenship. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I hope I understand that better now than I did you know twenty some years ago. But it, it was it's just as true then as it is now that uh, you know we uh, at the end of the day uh, we are meant to go uh, to be with Christ. And to, and to be in the heavenly city. It's sure good news that it's a kingdom that he has built and is building, not one that we have built ourselves. Yeah, yeah it's, it's got eternal foundations, and, and those foundations can't be shaken. Uh, what are you working on right now? Uh, a couple of things. I'm, I've, uh, I'm writing a, a, a chapter uh, on uh, modern uh, religious uh, history, and uh, and then I've got a large project uh, later on that I, I'm going to be working on uh, Calvin and uh, and uh, his approach to biblical uh, hermeneutics and how it relates to uh, uh, particularly medieval hermeneutics. Great. That sounds like uh, terrific work. We appreciate uh, everything that uh, comes down the pike from your pen. And if you haven't had a chance to look at uh, Scott's book, Recovering the Reformed Confession, that is a great place to start. And Scott, thanks for taking the time to be uh with us. Well, that's it for this edition of Office Hours. We'll be back next time for another episode, uh, that time with your regular host. You can listen to Office Hours online or subscribe and download it to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to WSS as in Sam, WSCAL.edu and click on Westminster Audio. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, just Visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's 888-480-8474. And uh, online again at wscal.edu. Copyright 2009, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You're permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and you don't charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to our website is preferred.